Welcome, Capital Raisers. I'm joined by Raymond Hyman today, who breaks down how he uses funds to take down mid-sized multifamilies for his investors. He uses analytics, tech, and aggressive seller campaigns to find lots of his deals. Are you guys ready to raise? Shout out to the Family Office Club and our newest show sponsor, Invest Next. Whether you have $5 million or $500 million, AUM Invest Next delivers an institutional grade experience to your investors and automates tasks like K1 distributions with a single click. With that, it's Capital Razor Show episode 286, and it starts now. Rock and roll, I got Ray Hyman on the Capital Razor Show. Welcome, my friend. How you doing, brother? Good. Thanks for having me, Ruben. Great show. Cool stuff. Happy to be a part of it. Sweet, man. Thanks for joining me. This is going to be so cool. Our Capital Razor Show Season 3 now brought to you by Pitch Decks, our friends at Richard Wilson's Family Office Club. We got Ray on here, who's a multifamily investor. Tell us a little bit about how you got into this space, brother. So I grew up in the Midwest originally. I'm from Cleveland. Super hardworking folks, one of whom owns a architecture and construction firm. And that's what really sparked my interest in real estate in the first place. And it's actually my summer job growing up. So I worked on his construction sites. And I was always, you know, sort of enamored by the space in general, but I shipped off to New York for college at Columbia. That's where I met my business partner here at Terra, Tom Higgins, who's a developer by trade and an absolute rock star. And we started while we were in school investing in smaller properties in New York City. And that is really what opened our eyes to the opportunity in smaller multifam and which is, you know, that's what we work on today. And it was at the time, just a way for us to close deals with smaller check sizes, because we were just getting started and we were young. But we took a look over to the side and saw single family home aggregators doing a lot of stuff at scale with very small properties. And we thought maybe we can bring some of that infrastructure and that strategy to the smaller multifamily space, which is a little bit more complex, but still has a lot of the same attributes and similar seller base and a lot of the same opportunities. And so that's really what we've been focused on doing. I had a couple serious jobs after school. I worked at JP Morgan in investment banking. I worked at Booz & Co. and their acquisition strategy desk. I worked at a private equity fund, Severica Capital, doing healthcare, tech, real estate, but the whole time, Tom and I kept buying these smaller multifam properties and really started to build out a scalable model. And a couple funds later, and a few more markets added, and that's where we're at today. So mostly focused in the Midwest, have a good presence in New York City as well, and very excited about expanding that footprint. Very interesting. Okay, so I went to Bridger Pennington's Fund Launch Live last year in Las Vegas, and there was a lot of people that were starting funds so that they could take down a bunch of single families. I think what you were mentioning is you had the same concept for smaller multifamilies, like anything from two to 20 units in that kind of range. That's exactly right. So we're focused on doing, and our whole philosophy is that there's basically this tremendous amount of value that's trapped in these small multifamily properties. And it's so difficult to extract that value because on their own, they are what we always refer to as too big for flippers. 
and too small for developers. So there's really nobody that's capitalized and Mm -hmm. set up properly to take them down. The same thing was true of single families 10, 15 years ago. Single fams are a little different. They're more like a consumer good than an investment vehicle because individuals live in them, they buy them, renovate them, do what they want, raise their kids there, et cetera. It's more like buying a minivan than it is like buying a stock. But we saw very similar opportunity in these smaller multifam properties to do effectively the same thing. And one of the things that has been a huge boon to us is that all the infrastructure for acquisitions, property technology to manage properties, the list goes on, is really built out already for smaller properties because of single fam aggregators. And so we get to step on those shoulders and really take advantage of all that stuff. But we're in that sub 20 unit space. We see a lot of the same seller attributes, lack of sophistication, inherited a property that they don't know what to do with or don't want. They might be embarrassed about selling the property. They're extremely sensitive to broker fees. So they don't want to have a broker in there showing their bad property off to a bunch of people just to take 5% off the top. Mm -hmm. And so we do a lot of off-market acquisitions in the space. We bring a lot of sellers to market because in a lot of cases, they've actually forgotten about these properties. And at the end of the day, we end up with a portfolio of really attractive price per unit properties in some of the most core neighborhoods in our markets. And so it's worked out really well for us. We've done it in New York. We've done it across a couple MSAs in the Midwest. And it seems like there's a really a, an avalanche or a sea of opportunity in the U.S. to take advantage of the space. So let's do a kind of invented case study So if you're looking for a 20 unit, for example, let's say in the Upper East Coast where some of your markets are at, what kind of price per unit are you looking for it to make sense? I know that you're probably dealing with more off-market kind of sellers, which I'm also curious about how you're acquiring these deals. But before we go down that road and the raising money part and how things are distributed amongst multiple deals... Let's just kind of take a one sample kind of scenario and explain to me the numbers on something that you would be interested in purchasing. What price per unit? How much cash flow does it make? What's yeah, the play? So if we were looking at a 20 unit, there's a great example with maybe a mix of one, two, and three beds. What we will look to enter at is right around $100,000 per unit. Now, if you're based on LA market, SF market, Miami, something like that, that might sound crazy, but By Midwest standards, this is a very scalable, attainable entry price per unit. Mm -hmm. We are value adders. So we'll come in and at the end of the day, we'll be adding maybe $50,000 of rent per unit. So we do a tremendous amount of value add. Now, there's a, I can go into the detail on what we do there, but you can imagine it looks a lot like a luxury style product, but it doesn't have at the end, but it's not amenitized. So there's no gym or anything like that, but it has quartz countertops, white subway tile backsplash, white subway tile surrounds in the bathroom. It's got engineered hardwood floors, washer dryer and unit. And so we will produce that and be about $150,000 per unit in. Now, if we sold that property and just kind of flipped it, generally that price per unit at exit would be right around $200,000. That's the average that we see across our markets. So right there, it's a 1.33x without leverage. And that's 
the very basic level of value that's trapped in these small multifams. But we do two things. One, we add leverage to that. So we enter with debt. We are conservative, but we're at about 65% LTV. So we get a tremendous amount of value through that. But the other thing that is a little bit unique about what we do in multifam, and it harkens back to what single fam aggregators have done, is the way that they would buy a bunch of single fam homes, renovate them, and then bring them into a portfolio and get a lot more value per property because it's in a portfolio, because it's an institutional grade investment and these larger buyers are going after it, we take advantage of the same thing. So we don't just sell a property one off. We actually bundle it into a portfolio, which institutionalizes it, sort of securitizes that. And if we were going to exit at $200,000 per unit, the exit in the portfolio is much closer to the 245, 250 range. Let's stop right there. Why yeah. is that? Because there is, I've seen in built to rent too, where if you have a 200 unit subdivision and you combine it with two other subdivisions and make that number above 500 total houses that you sell, they'll yeah. pay a premium to buy all of it in bulk, which kind of seems counterintuitive. I'm assuming this is very similar with you. It does. There's two reasons. One is the process of building a portfolio, I can tell you firsthand, because we do it every single day of our lives, is hard. So if you want to go and buy 500 units, and you just want 500 stabilized units, you just want one transaction. Going through the effort of building a portfolio is tough. We get compensated for that work, but it's hard. But the real reason why groups will pay a lot more per unit when it gets into that larger space has to do with who those groups are. So when you hit that those thresholds, whether it's 200 units, three, four, 500 units, we like to be in that 550 range for a fund or higher. That is a point where you now are targeting institutional grade buyers. These folks are starved for larger assets mm-hmm. and have higher yields. And There are many of those people, but not that many assets out there. There's very few individual assets with that many units, especially in our markets. In fact, in some of our markets, there's none. And there are very few portfolios that come to market every year, maybe two or three. But there are 30, 40, 50 institutional groups that are hunting in every market across the U.S., but especially in the Midwest, which is a recession-resistant, sort of boring place for them to get a high-yield asset and park their capital for a long period of time. And that creates a supply-demand imbalance, which creates a lot of competition for those portfolios, and it drives prices up. Every single time a portfolio comes to market, it goes one level higher, and we track portfolios constantly, and it's a classic example. But you get institutional groups, you get family offices, you get real estate PE funds, you get some international real estate investment funds. And it really runs the gamut, but it's a tight bidding process. We do it with CBRE when we exit, and it has a, a great, great turnout. So how many of these have you sold off to institutions? We've had four exits. We are in the middle of raising another fund that's across three markets in the Midwest. And we are have our eyes on another fund that we would like to kick off at the beginning of next year. Hopefully, the timing works out. and. We're expanding as we go. Right now, we're really focused on three major MSAs. And by the end of this year, early next, when we launch that next fund, we would like to be pretty well established in as many as eight MSAs. So we're growing pretty rapidly. We're very picky with our markets. 
And we think we've got really good ones, but we know that there are a handful of similar markets out there that are low-hanging fruit for what we do. I'm curious if some of these buyer groups ever dissect the portfolio and say, hey, we love 60% of the assets, but we don't love the other 40%. Can we purchase this 60% and then you sell those somewhere else? What kind of, have you had that kind of a conversation? 100%. And it's a short conversation because the response is, I'll let you know if things don't work out, but we're looking to sell the whole thing and more. But it is a thing that happens and we entertain those offers. And sometimes groups are so focused in a specific market that they will offer so much more for that part of the portfolio that it does make sense to split them up. But there is a good solid market out there that actually wants something that's national level at the portfolio side. I didn't talk about this, but one of the benefits of buying a portfolio is just the hedged risk. It's not a single asset. It's not dependent on a single neighborhood or a single market. It's across multiple markets with multiple sub-theses going on. So if one thing doesn't work out, you're going to get benefit from another thing working out better than you expected. And hedging the risk is an important part of what these groups are looking for. So they actually like having that dispersed asset type, maybe this many six-unit buildings, this many 12-unit buildings, this many 20-unit buildings. They appreciate having the, the spread. I'm curious about the property management because you can't have, it's too small to have an on-site property manager typically. Do you have one group that manages entire portfolios within given markets or maybe even nationally? What has been your experience about the challenges of trying to property manage multiple two to 20 unit deals? We talk about how we process and put systems in place and all this stuff for acquisitions and portfolio building and construction management and all that stuff. But the place where we do it the most is in property management because we actually self-manage all of our properties. We started in the property management business. That's where we kicked off mm -hmm. our real estate entry and started buying properties from there. But we are a very tech-enabled, cloud-first property management firm. We are super users of all of the interesting prop tech that's come out. And we are very reliant on the system and the tech stack that we've built behind our property management. We do have folks that oversee large sets of our portfolio, but a lot of what they're doing is overseeing the tech stack, handling one-off situations when they come up. There's certainly parts of our process that need human input, like approving larger repairs, et cetera. And so there's people in place for that and their compensation is tied to them doing a good job and keeping costs tight. But really every part of the tenant journey that you can imagine, we have a software behind it that takes what would be five hours of effort down to maybe five minutes of human effort on our part. And I give you a couple examples, Please. but one is leasing. We do everything completely remote leasing. We don't do any in-person leasing. So when somebody wants to take a look at a unit, there's a high-level internet scrub background check that's run on that person. There is a catalog of their photo ID. There is a single non-repeated code that's given to that person that they can use on our Schlage locks that are on the unit so that they can go in and tour. While they're touring, they're on a FaceTime with our property manager who still does the leasing, but he can sit there instead of doing a 20-minute drive to go and do a couple tours, he can sit there and do five-minute tour after five-minute tour. And then the entire process of lease drafting and price setting is also automated. You type the number in and it 
set, shoots out everything. And then the tenant is approved and their move-in date is set. And we don't even need to worry about the key handoff because we do everything with our electronic lock system. It's a 100% hands-off lease system that we have done hundreds of rentals with. And it's a good example of the broader situation behind our technology is one, it's hugely cost-effective and efficient for us. But two, our residents love it. Yes. And you actually get some of the best residents because maybe That's they true. couldn't They'll pay make a premium the tour. for it. Exactly. Maybe it's not you who is still germophobic and doesn't want to have too much interaction, but some of the best paid and quietest, most high value tenants are like that. And yeah. they appreciate the remote leasing, but everything from security deposit to move out to even our maintenance, we've installed a... DIY software where residents have the opportunity to DIY their issue before it gets escalated to a, a repair. It's all been the same. The residents love the service and it significantly reduces our operational complexity. It makes 100 units feel like 10. Any other technology that you've, through surveying your residents that they specifically love or want or are asking for or that you've implemented into your properties that they like, for example, anything like USB ports into the outlets or anything like that? Yeah. What we've found is that the stuff that they like best is what they can do with their phone. And there's two things. One is that DIY that I was mentioning where they put in a maintenance request. Let's say their microwave's broken. And the first thing that comes back is they describe the maintenance request. The first thing that comes back from the third party is the link to the YouTube video for a DIY solution to that problem. And so they flip the circuit breaker, they do whatever the recommendation is based off the symptoms that got sent in. And then boom, within five minutes, their microwave's working again. They don't have to wait a week. So you think that it's uh, the resident messages for repair and then they're angry because nobody's helping them, but they actually love being able to just have a solution right at hand. And another good example is we use a, a software that consolidates our utilities for each unit, which for us helps a ton because when somebody moves out or when we're doing a lease up, it's a lot of time and effort to call the utility company, get the utility switched onto the property for two months, then get switched back to a tenant once renovations are complete or that weak stub between when the old tenant moves out and the new tenant moves in, who pays for those utilities, you send a separate check, all that. So we have a tech-enabled service that actually handles that whole transition. So it's huge wow. pain off our shoulders. That, weirdly enough, utility changing is one of the biggest bottlenecks in our system before the software. And the resident loves it because instead of them having to go to Duquesne Light and People's Gas and the water utility and get everything set up under their name, they can do all of it in the app in one go. And they just put in their bank information and their name. And all of that is managed through the app and they can actually see their monthly usage right there. And so it provides a great service to them. It provides a great service to us and it's a huge cost saver and it increases retention. So those are the two that I think folks like the most, but there's actually probably six or seven that people use on a regular basis. They really enjoy. Okay. Very cool. Tell me about the acquisition side of your business. So how do you find these deals? Are you getting anything from the MLS or is it all off market? Tell me about how you're selecting and picking these deals. 
Yeah, we're 70-30. So 70 off market, 30 on market. On market, I would say where we win is in the too big for flipper, too small for developer, two to 20 space. So there's not that many people looking at it, but especially if there's more work that needs to be done than average, we're value adders. That doesn't scare us away at all. When that goes up on MLS and maybe it goes under contract, they do a inspection report and there's some light structural thing that freaks out your typical buyer, but for us, it's no big deal. Then we win there and we get really good prices per, per unit at entry. But where we do our best is in that 70% of off-market units that we bring in. And there, what we're really focused on is two things. One is constantly doing data analytics behind what's working for us and what's not. I think a lot of people that do off-market strategies just do one thing. It works well at first, and then it slows down. You need to refresh your data. You need to figure out different data sources. You need to find out why something is working and why it isn't working. So we spend a lot of time doing that. And the second thing is having an omni-channel approach. So there's all these sellers out there. In our current markets, there's over 25,000 multifamily properties that are in our buy box. And we have found all of those properties, defined them by buy box. We have prioritized the ones by how long they've been owned, how old the mortgage is, et cetera, how old the owner is. And then we contact them by so many different means that you will get in touch with them eventually. So we do cold calling through a third-party vendor. We do cold emailing, also a third-party vendor. We do old-school traditional mailers, which for a lot of these types of owners is actually very effective. A lot of them are looking to retire. They're a little bit older. They might not pick up the phone. They might be on the house line, and they might not respond to their email except for every two months, right? So the mailer is effective. Then we also do things like scrubbing Facebook Marketplace and Craigslist. And all of those places are effective ways to get in front of sellers, develop a rapport, and close. Now, the human capital part of our business that's you know, probably the most important piece are our acquisitions analysts. And they are trained to take those warm inbound leads and turn them into a closed deal, develop a rapport with the seller underwrite the deal, make sure we've got the right price, make sure our construction budget is perfect. And that is the real crux of us doing well off market. They are the center of that. They're the heart of our acquisitions team, but they're aided by just a ton of third-party software and tech-enabled services that help them get the leads that are really promising. So there's a whole five-hour dissertation on the data analytics behind some of those things, but that's our strategy and it's worked out very well so far, especially in our markets where the competition isn't as pitched as it might be in some other markets in the U.S. So in this space, I see a lot of creative financing and negotiation of price. Do you have any hacks or any things that you discuss to lower the price on some of these once they tell you? I know you also mentioned that some of these buyers, and I can understand why, they don't want to pay a broker's fee. So do you do some transactions without a broker involved? Yeah, those 70% off market are without brokers. So we do a lot of our transactions without brokers. We, I think the number one thing for us that differentiates us and that we found is effective 
is surprise, surprise, honesty. We are very transparent with sellers. If there's a, during the due diligence process, we have an extremely detailed due diligence checklist. If we find something that we didn't know about the property when we made the offer, that is a major cost burden to us, then that's part of a, a retrade conversation if we need it. We show them exactly what an average broker fee would look like if they went with a broker process. I bet you that helps quite a bit. <laughs> they love that because even though 5% could be worth it to market your property broadly, there's two things. One, they're embarrassed about the state of their property a lot. So they don't necessarily want 100 people tromping through there and seeing the fact that they left this place vacant for five years. And two, they have a real chip on their shoulder about giving a 5% broker's fee to somebody that just unlocks the door in their mind. Mm -hmm. Now, brokers do a lot more than that in practice, but from their perspective, that's all they see. And so it's a big deal. That particular hot button thing is it's something good to dig in on because they center around it. They really want to avoid paying a broker fee. I love it. Okay, cool. So let me see if I can get you to walk me through a timeline of the way that you have brought in capital into your deals over time. I'm assuming that in the beginning, it was either done with your money or with joint venture capital. And eventually you decided to go into raising for your deals through a fund. Is this correct? That's exactly right. So we started off with syndications. We were in New York City. We had real estate background with jobs that we'd done, internships, being agents and brokers here and there. And so we had enough of a network to put together JV money for smaller deals. And we still do syndications now for properties that are 50 units and above when we come across those in our markets. But what we found is that in order to really deploy reliably, effectively, efficiently in this segment of the market, small multifam, you have to have a committed capital fund. You have to be able to give offers that you can stand behind and execute on. And your reputation in the market matters. And you can't syndicate for every deal and then worry that the money might not come through. Plus, some of these deals are so small that it would be very difficult to syndicate them. I mean, we it's an extreme example, but we have deals that are the purchase price is $250,000. And when that happens, how are you really going to syndicate that? It would be a $40,000 equity check or something like that. We moved into the fund structure. And it also is a more organized way for us to manage a portfolio and also, because we do the portfolio exit and take advantage of portfolio arbitrage, portfolio premium, it helps that everything is under one roof. It has one set of decision makers. Our investment committee is only one group. It's not multiple different investment committees that all have to agree to exit at the same time in order to sell enough units at a time to hit critical mass. And so that's been key for us. I think because of the amount of value that's trapped in small multifam and some of the track record that we've been able to show, we've had a good time with raising funds, but it's difficult. It's very different from raising syndications. Some groups only want one or the other, but I would say predominantly folks are more interested in doing syndications and investing in funds, but it helps that we've got that track record at 2.3x net multiple on invested capital for LPs, 25% net IRR or so, and that has been able to justify the structure, if you will. Okay, cool. So I know you have a background in private equity and working and selling for, sounded like Wall Street when I heard you say earlier. I kind of want to address the audience, specifically the ones that are looking to launch a fund. And I'm not sure if you can answer this, but maybe you can. 
For those guys out there that are listening that want to launch a fund, can you walk us through the process of how you became sophisticated enough to determine what lawyer to use, what kind of a structure to use when you launched your fund, specifically addressing the person out there that wants to follow that path? There's a couple things about understanding how funds work that are helpful to kind of get your basis on. But the number one thing is that if you're going to take unaccredited investors, it's a whole path. And then if you're going to take accredited investors, which meet these certain standards on how much money they make and their net worth and all that stuff, then it's a whole different, much easier path. And that latter path is what we're focused on. We do have a, a vehicle for unaccredited investors to invest alongside the fund, but it's complicated. It's to a reg CF. But there's 506C, there's 506B, and there's the 31A or whatever the nomenclature is that are the typical ways to do it. And that allows you to not have to go crazy and register with the SEC and all this stuff when you are relatively small. And the long and short of it is you want to go after accredited investors and you want to pick a law firm that is reliable. We had the benefit of being in the institutional world long enough to know law firms that did it. But if you look up securities firms and firms that have backed venture capital companies that have backed other larger real estate funds, you can call whoever the local, try to get in touch with whoever a local investment group is in your area and ask who their lawyer is for security stuff. Honestly, that's the best route to go. You're never going to be able to educate yourself on it sufficiently. You have to find that good best in class in your market lawyer and trust them. And it is not an inexpensive process. It takes time and it requires various registrations and it requires a lot of thinking about what the terms of your offering are going to be and why. But it's a very rewarding once you get it done. But it's complex. It's very difficult to get out of that process for less than $50,000. And it is something that you should only do when you feel like you have a real good opportunity and shot to raise the capital that you're looking to raise. Interesting perspective. Okay, cool. So let me ask you about the ideal avatar that you're trying to attempt to, to help and get cash flow for them. Are you looking for accredited investors or do you take on some institutional capital or any other kind of capital? Yeah. So we do have that unaccredited sidecar. We are largely looking at accredited investors and family offices. So in that realm, that's kind of bridges high net worth and single family office. But we do take retail accredited investors as well. And it's more of a forum situation. I think we'll do things like a webinar to get in touch with folks that are maybe in that more retail investor focus. But then with family offices and high net worth individuals, it's much more of a one-on-one -on -one touch type of process that we go through to educate them on what our fund looks like and what our returns are. But more than anything else, I think we rely on word of mouth and folks that have done well with us in the past through funds or done well with us through syndication. And that has been the most effective. I think there's a lot out there on use this emailing method or end your statements with question marks to draw attention. And there's all these different tips and tricks that I'm sure they're effective, but Really, at the end of the day, investing with somebody is about trust, and it is about being able to demonstrate that you can do what you're saying you're going to do. So once you've got the track record, 
it's more about your network and people that you've done a good job for before helping you expand your network. And in the 21st century, and especially for somebody who's is so much tech enablement, it can seem like a, a slog, but it's really still an old school thing. If you want to lock up a larger family office, it's really dependent on relationships. And so that's how we have approached it. Cool. I've had a few family offices approach me recently that are raising capital for themselves. And they're coming to me saying, hey, I've raised $20 million so far. I've raised $40 million so far. I really want to scale, but I don't have a website. I don't have all these things that like much lower level syndicators do have in marketing campaigns. We don't have a marketing guy that can handle that stuff. And I don't know how to write blogs or do webinars or do any of that stuff. Can you help me? And I'm just kind of curious from your perspective, what are you doing to reach out to, or are you doing anything to go out and meet new people that's specifically marketing, non-networking or relationship-based? I should say everything's relationship-based, but not existing referral-based, better said, kind of approach to raising capital that you're doing. Yeah, we try to hit nodes in the market that are high value and low effort. Not that we don't want to try hard for it, but we just don't want to be scrounging around for every last dime. And so we'll do things like webinars where we'll invite a community or we'll do something like an investment club. A good example is left field investors in Ohio, right? So we, we might give a talk at an investment club like that. We'll partner with somebody like a SDIRA, self-directed IRA firm, yeah. and do go on one of their webinars or have somebody from their firm join ours. They're more educational, but it helps get the word out about our firm and what we do. And we also have worked with placement agents in the past, and they're extremely effective, especially at introducing new family offices that you would have no connection to otherwise. Cool. And it helps seed that conversation a little bit. Tell me about these placement agents. You're referring to broker-dealers or different type of kind of placement agent? There's broker-dealers, and then there's the more casual placement agents that simply have a, a small percentage of equity raised. And they're licensed and everything, but they're not like one of the large broker-dealer firms in the U.S. So it runs the gamut. We try to be regional with it. So folks that are in New York, especially, we get a lot of help from them. There's so many families here. It's helpful to have a guide through that to maximize your exposure. But we haven't really gone down any routes other than that to date. Fascinating. Okay, cool, man. Let's dive into the lightning round. My first question to you is, what is the best vacation you've ever taken? My best vacation, I'm a, as we were chatting about earlier, I'm a classics history guy. And I went on a trip to Rome, Athens, and some other cool places from Greek and Roman history. It was awesome being at the Parthenon for the first time. And that was probably my best vacation. But it's fun to see some of those sites that you read about in the flesh. It's just a cool experience. Favorite book of any kind? I am a big biography reader. I think I have a couple of favorite biographies, but I think the one that is most broadly applicable is Ron Chernow's Washington. It's his George Washington biography. It's a cool story. I think it gives a side of Washington that I didn't know about before. And it's a cool story, especially for the world that we're in, because as much about networking and how you present yourself and how you handle crisis management, much more than it is about just winning battles and starting a country. It's a much more complex tale. So 
I think in general, those are great self-improvement books to read, but that particular one was really inspiring. Fascinating. How much of your success do you attribute to mindset? I think a lot of it is attributed to mindset. I would differentiate it in the sense that it's less of a meditation, eat right type mindset thing, although I like to eat right, but it's less about that and it's more about making sure that the stuff that I don't want to do, I do it. And it's a Mike Tyson quote, but it's determination is convincing yourself that the stuff you really hate to do, you love to do, and kind of gaslighting yourself into making sure that gets done. And so I think that that type of mindset is what helps break you through some of those things. Like starting a fund, for instance, was a brick wall that I had to punch my head through. And that was extremely rewarding, but I had to convince myself the whole time along the way. How long do you want to live? Forever. Give me more details on that. I think that with modern advances in artificial intelligence, that's a very realistic expectation. No, I'm just kidding. I think um, I lead my life as if I'm going to live forever. And I don't necessarily think, oh, I'm going to make this one big set of money and just run away. I think my mindset is more build something really sustainable, ground up that'll last forever. And so even if it's not me physically living forever, I want to create something that lasts like that. And so that's where my mindset is. If I could live forever and constantly keep building and working on what I do, I, I would. Best way to raise capital from your perspective, short answer. Real lasting relationships with folks that you know and word of mouth. Tell me about a moment that changed the trajectory of your life. I think the first time we exited a small multifam deal in New York, I had thought about there's scalability, there's great stuff out there and this is a really good deal and I modeled it out and I was like, oh, this is gonna be great. But when the deal finally closed and we exited, and I was just had the real world bank account version of having our thesis validated. It just changed the way that I looked at the whole thing. I was like, this was theoretical, this was on paper, and now it is very real. And that moment of actuating, if you will, was an amazing moment and is what you know drives me. What is the most desirable trait that an entrepreneur can possess? I think the number one thing here is whatever trade it is that makes you a good leader of people in your own organization. And it comes in many different flavors, but some people just have that it factor of being able to develop talent and retain talent. But I think it's something that you can also learn. I don't think it's something that I'm at yet, but would love to get there. And I think if you look at the famous leaders in history, it's not them doing great things. It's people doing great things through them as their deputies. And that is the real mark of a strong entrepreneur. I think that the folks that have gone real bright and then flamed out don't have that ability to really have long-term retained leadership capability in their organizations. Yeah, man, that is very powerful. It's very challenging to scale. If you've never managed people and then you get into the syndication and all of a sudden you got a team that you got to get them to show up at meetings and things, very interesting. That's a great answer. It's it's tough and not everybody's personality is really well suited to it, but I think everyone can do it. And so recognizing where your strengths and weaknesses are, some people are naturally good at it, some people aren't, and filling in the gaps is the key. Okay, I wanna hear about this upcoming trip to visit the Napoleon Battlegrounds. I'm going on a trip to a couple different places in Europe. It includes Italy, France, and some places in 
northern France, southern Germany, that are just the, the areas of famous battles that Napoleon fought. And in my endless hobby of reading biographies, I recently finished a, an excellent Napoleon biography and it just kind of captured my attention. And so I love the experience of seeing in the real world some of the stuff that you've been just thinking about and reading about. And so that's what I'm going on to do. I might make a couple excursions for some French wine here and there. I might make a couple of culinary excursions, but we'll keep it generally history related. Are you by chance planning on crossing the Rubicon? I am going to cross the Rubicon, yes. Very dramatically. I'm going to make an Instagram reel out of it, and it'll be my, my first post since 2019, but it'll be a good one. <laughs> Love it. Do your spiritual philosophies have anything to do with your success in business? I think so. I don't necessarily have that same religion-based spiritual philosophy that a lot of people do, but I think that there is a genuine ethic to how you treat people and what you get out of relationships. And it's not just a transactional type of thing, but it has a lot more to do with mentorship and developing relationships. And I think that general philosophy, maybe it's more ethical than spiritual, is beneficial, but also it makes the journey a lot more pleasurable than just feeling like you're constantly transacting with folks coldly. There's a big tie there. Have you ever experienced a miracle or had a near-death experience? I have never had a near-death experience. I have had, I think every day is a miracle, but when I look up and see the team that we've built here, my partner and I, it is just incredibly rewarding and is maybe not that angel coming down from heaven type miracle, but it is, uh, man, it's good to be alive moment every time I think about it. Last question, what impact would you like to leave in the world? I think, and it gets, it gets back to the longevity a little bit, but I would like to leave myself, my employees, my investors, my family in a measurably better place than I found them. But more specifically, I'd like to to leave some of the markets and some of the things that we do in our company in a great place as I progress. And there's a major mission component to what we do. There is a lot going on in the Midwest. It's a special place. We didn't talk about that market a lot, but it kind of got the short end of the stick in the 80s. But it's come back in a really strong, resilient, recession-resistant manner. And it culturally is very cool and interesting. And yes, you've got to pick the right MSAs. Not every place in the Midwest is great, but it's good to be a part of that revival. And I would love to continue on the path of being a part of the Midwest, sort of making a comeback, whether that's through work or through other things. And it is not something I'm a zealot about necessarily, but I'm passionate about being a part of, of that overall trend. Fantastic answers on the lightning round. Thanks for entertaining us on that part of the show. Shout out to the Capital Racer Nation. Thanks for tuning in. Please leave us a five-star written review. Shout out to pitchdex.com. How does the audience get a hold of you, Ray? Yeah, so the easiest way is to find us online at our website, usaterra.com. We have a lot of great content on there if you want to learn more, but you can also feel free to shoot us an email at info at usaterra.com. Follow us on LinkedIn. We've got a bigger pockets presence. We've got a Twitter presence. We do webinars from time to time that you can register on our website to those. 
And we also have an investor link. So if you're interested in learning more about some of the offerings we have, we have a Midwest small multifam fund and we have a 60 unit syndication right now. Feel free to click on our investor tab there, learn more and, and reach out. We'd love to discuss and love to keep the conversation going and general multifam, US multifam and the mini multi small multifamily space. You're very articulate, man. This has been a great conversation. Any last words of wisdom that you have for the aspiring multifamily or capital raiser as they scale on their journey? The one quick thing I would say is grab yourself a free Myers-Briggs test online. 16 Personalities is a great website for that. Really think about your strengths and weaknesses and where you've got weaknesses. Make sure you fill that in with practice, training, or a partner or an employee that can help you through those because everyone's got weaknesses. Everyone's got strengths and just make sure you play to your strengths and you shore up your weaknesses. Fantastic, dude. This has been amazing. Thank you so much for joining us, man. Really cool getting to know you today. Likewise. Thanks, Ruben. It's been a pleasure. 